0: Hallo, wir kennen uns. Hier ist Clark. Was du vielleicht auch kennst. Nur einen Moment nicht aufgepasst und rums auf den Vordermann gedängelt. Gut, wenn man da versichert ist. Noch besser, wenn man mit Clark seine Versicherungen ganz einfach per App managen kann. Eine echte Unterstützung auch im Schadensfall. Denn Clark kümmert sich um die Abwicklung mit deinem Versicherer. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die freundlichen Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Ganz ohne Wartezeit. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro.
1: Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh baby, I'll
2: give it to you.
1: That looks really good.
2: Yes it does, it's dead on. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham.
3: And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we hear from the Meteor Scientists studying, quote, the single most important. Extraterrestrial samples ever. You'll love him. He's so enthusiastic. Plus, we'll be catching up with Kate Arklis Gray, Twitter's Space Kate, an intrepid space reporter who has a knack of getting extraordinary access to astronauts and space events.
2: But last month, we promised you ESA astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti ahead of her second flight to the International Space Station in 2022.
3: Since her first stay on the space station or ISS seven years ago, Samantha has completed further test missions and training on Earth. In 2020, her book, Diary of an Apprentice Astronaut, was published and next year she's set to return to the space station, this time as commander, the first European woman to hold the position. Her first flight was in a Soyuz, so we began by asking her how she felt about going up in a SpaceX Dragon.
1: I am definitely very happy that on this second flight I get to to try out a new vehicle, which doesn't mean that it is better or worse, but having flown Soyuz already, uh, I think it's it's definitely great for me personally and professionally to try a different ride to space station this time.
3: Now, you've already encountered Dragon before, but from the uh, viewpoint of being on the space station and using the robotic arm to ensure it docks correctly. Do you have to do a lot of new training now for your next mission?
1: Right, yeah, so you said it right. I I did see a cargo Dragon, actually two of them when I was up there on, on Space Station. The Dragon I will fly on is a new version obviously it's one that is meant to to carry crew members to space station but also the cargo version uh, now does an automated docking to space station so probably we will also have some cargo dragons at least one come up during our stay but this time we will not have to go and grab it with the robotic arm it will actually dock automatically to space station with the same docking principle, docking operations as the crude vehicle. Uh, It's very much an automated vehicle. Now, to be completely clear, my ride on Soyuz was quite automated as well. However, Soyuz did have a lot of, let's say, downgraded modes that you could fall upon in case the automatic systems failed. And so there was a very, very extensive training for crew members, at least for the commander and the flight engineer, number one, which was my role, to make sure that crew members were able to intervene manually, take over manually in some critical phases of flight. And that was kind of like the the redundancy of the Soyuz. The Dragon has all of that redundancy kind of built in its own software. So it does not require a whole lot of training in terms of manual interventions, which makes sense, right? Because it's also a vehicle that is meant to carry paying passengers. We are looking at, I think in a couple of months, the, the first flight on a dragon of a completely, let's call it civilian crew, like n- none of those crew members are professional astronauts. And so it's it's a vehicle built with with that in mind, with uh, certainly all the necessary redundancy, but it's kind of built in the software itself.
2: And, and what about your commander role of, of this next mission? I mean, is this something you have to train specially for, or is it something that you you just you just go into having acquired all the I mean the huge amount of experience you've now got. Congratulations, so, by the way. Okay, thank you.
1: <laughs> there is not a whole lot of dedicated training, as you know. The space station is composed by two major. We call them segments, like you know the Russian segment and then the the non-Russian segment. So the NASA, European, Japanese modules that built up this this other part of space station. And the crew, as you know, is is also composed by Russian crew members and non-Russian crew members. And typically the Russian crew members are trained very extensively on the Russian segment. And we non-Russian get a little bit of training on the Russian segment just so that we are able to function, like, you know, to get water, use the toilet, use the comm system and respond in case of an emergency. And then The other way around, in the non-Russian modules, the NASA, ESA, JAXA modules, we get a lot of extensive training and the Russians get just a little bit so that they can function and respond in case of an emergency. When you are a commander, you get a little bit more of an extensive training on the other segment. So that again, especially in case of an emergency, since as the commander, you're the person ultimately responsible for the the safety and the actions of the entire crew, you need to have a little bit of a better understanding also of the other segment. So if you're the commander and you're a Russian crew member, you will get some extra training on the non-Russian modules, you know, more extensive than your other Russian crewmates and vice versa. So I will get some extra training on the Russian segment in terms of training.
2: Uh, do you have a particular c- command style, do you think?
3: Uh, Captain Janeway, I would have thought. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I find out. But definitely this is, uh, it, you know, when you when, when you do your leadership courses that, you know, many of us do in some capacities during their life, professional life, uh, there's always that the, the chart, you know, it's like the, the basic theory, which is if you're the commander or the manager or the leader, and the the people that you are leading are a lot less experienced and less competent than you are, then you have to be more directive. But of course, if everybody is more or less at the same level of competence and experience, which is very much the case on Space Station, and you just happen to be the one who is chosen in that moment to have the leadership role, but really anybody else could have done it as well, then it, it's more like a collegial way of, of figuring out things, of finding common ground. It's more about you know altogether finding the right way of doing things that works best for the crew.
2: Uh, Now, part of the reason I ask is because we just interviewed for our last podcast, Terry Virts, who was your your previous uh, commander, one of the previous commanders on the ISS. Um, He said, and I'm sorry to spring this on you, he said we had to ask you this question. This is him speaking on the last podcast. You have to ask her this question. Ask her what it was like flying with two such strong and handsome men.
1: Oh, I love Terry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can you just set up the context of that, of, of, that, of what that was all about? Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it was definitely a long-running joke in our in our crew, and it, it gave us a lot of laughs. I think it was right before um, our final exams over in, in Russia. It's very formal. There's like a commission and, and this and that, but there's also a moment of... for for the press, (laughs) you know, just before you start your exam, there's a little press pool that that typically covers those uh, exams. And they, they get to ask a few questions for a few minutes. And so all of a sudden I get this question, which today I still don't know if she meant it seriously, or maybe it was meant as a joke. But this Russian journalist, she asks me how I felt about the prospect of flying to space with these two handsome men with those strong shoulders that I could lean upon.
4: <laughs>
1: and of course the, the three of us would burst out in in in, in laugh. And and then for the rest of the training and the flight, it would, you know, once in a while Terry would just look at his shoulder, you know, and and with with, the, with this funny look in his face, and we would all just burst out laughing. <laughs> Oh my goodness.
3: That's, I must admit, that's one of the, the, the funnier <laughs> questions that I've heard in terms of one of these days. I think women, particularly women astronauts are going to take it seriously and just say, you're right. I'm just not sure I'll be able to control myself. I'm going to call <laughs> the whole thing off. Yeah, that
1: would be the end of that. I know, but but then you never know, especially when there's like, um, you know, intercultural communication yes. aspects, you know, they, they might take it as a <laughs> serious sense. answer and then, <laughs> then you're in trouble.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been um, reading your Diary of an Apprentice astronaut book and I love all the um, both the descriptions of the training that, that you have to do, but also just a little sort of personal stuff. Like, for instance, when you were at Star City, that you saw so many former cosmonauts and that someone would just say, Oh, look, see that woman there? She used, she was Tereshkova's backup. I, know. From Voss- yeah, I isn't mean, it amazing? That, that's astonishing. I had no idea that there were so many former cosmonauts working there.
1: Some work there. Some just still live there um, because oh, so I, I think in out. Soviet, yeah. yeah, because I think in Soviet times uh, and, and partially even still today, right? They they got their accommodations given out, so all of them got their um, apartment assigned in Star City back then. And so I think that there is a whole generation of older Soviet cosmonauts who basically never left. I mean, they eventually retired from the cosmonaut corps. This older lady who was, you know, walking to work, yeah, she was Tereshkova's backup. She could have been the first woman in space if something had happened to Tereshkova during her training, for example.
3: That's amazing, and it's, it's also it was it was good timing in a way when your book did come out because it was shortly before ESA opened up its uh, call for astronauts. Um, did you get lots of potential astronauts suddenly contacting you asking for advice?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, uh, several <laughs> did, and uh, I think uh, th- there's a few who sent me their motivation letter. Just you know, take a glance and, and see if I had uh, some some suggestions. Incredibly, incredibly strong candidates. So I uh, I think we will uh, we will be able to select a group of uh, of amazing young colleagues.
3: And I like the way that you did the uh, the video as well, sort of encouraging. Anyone who is perhaps sitting on the fence in terms of a, an entry. And although I hesitate to ask you a question that specifically refers to you being a parent, because as so often happens, that question is not asked of, of, of men. I love the fact that you put in it, you know, I'm, I'm a mother. I'm a mother of two. Was that a sort of calculated effect just to sort of let people know, obviously, men are parents too, but just to say, you can combine, even though it's a challenging job, you can combine having a family with being an astronaut.
1: Yes, yes. I I think we did want to get that message out because we really have an interest in getting the best people and we can only select the best people, of course, to the best of our abilities and uh, taking into account the fact that no selection process is perfect, but uh, we'll be Try to to select the best people, and and we can only do that if those people apply. And so we certainly did not want people who might be extremely well qualified for for this job to hesitate and maybe in the end not apply because they think, you know, I've got a family, I have children, there is no way I can combine this life with having children or you know having a family. And and, and again, make no mistakes. I mean, this is a demanding job, but. We also get an incredible support from the agency. So when when you are selected to train and then fly on a mission, people really bend over backwards to to help you. And so I I, I really think it is possible, of course, with the support of your partner. (laughs) Definitely, right? Especially if you have children, you need another adult (laughs) who is going to take over those responsibilities in those uh, years in which you're going to be very busy. But again, it's not forever, right? I mean, it goes in, it's it peaks and valleys. It, it's a job in which, uh, you know, maybe for a couple of years you will be very, very busy and traveling a lot. But then you can choose to really slow down between missions. It, it's really up to the astronauts to, to decide how, engaged they want to be. And, you know, if a person has children and they decide, okay, after the mission, I really want to slow down for a few years and then ramp back up when it's time for the next mission, uh, there is definitely a possibility to to do so. So in a way, it's actually a really family-friendly job in that sense. And the training
3: aspect that you do go in, into in the book, you mentioned leadership training, for instance. There's all those different aspects, and obviously a lot of your background was naturally perfect for this job in terms of your science and engineering background, the fact that you were a pilot and you'd worked in the military, which gives an awful lot of self-discipline. What would you say perhaps has been the best life skill that you have that helped you as an astronaut?
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe one that I think has helped me a lot and and is maybe not so obvious is I am someone who can make a home in a new place really quickly like you know I, I get to a new place and and this is the new normal and in a matter of a day or two I will just feel comfortable wherever you parachute me <laughs>
3: into but you also travel very light though as well I, uh,
1: yes well you know especially when I was uh, single and and living on my own of course but, but, but I think that that helps a lot I mean in, in this life because you're 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 moving in different countries all the time for, for training, and then eventually you even move to this very special home, which is the space station. It's a lot easier if you're not somebody who like misses the previous place that you were in, but rather, like in, in my case, you immediately think, okay, this is the new normal, this is my new home, this is my new life, and, and it's all good, and I um, and think that, that's quite helpful.
3: It's quite interesting that during the pandemic, it's been the one time that ordinary people on Earth have suddenly related to astronauts on the space station in terms of understanding when they're in lockdown what it was like to live in one area, to only see certain walls, to, to be in that confined space and also appreciate the sort of psychological aspect of it of maybe perhaps seeing the same person all the time. So for you, was lockdown a breeze?
1: No, no, definitely. And it, it, it was a challenge for me, me as well. And I, I, I really want to say this because, you know, for, for all the people, and I, and I said it last year during the lockdown itself, you know, for all the people who found it challenging and difficult, you know, it, it was challenging and difficult. It was for everyone, also for astronauts who had a somewhat similar experience on space station. Space station is a little bit different, right? You choose to go to space station, you are incredibly busy. I mean, it, it's your life, it's your work, it's what you've trained for. So there is a lot of reward uh, from from the daily work. You find meaning in every little thing you do. The right type of challenge. I mean, you know, you're, you're challenged, but not, you know, not not to the point where you think you cannot make it because you know again, this is what you were selected and trained for. So it's a very rewarding environment, even if it is confined and and, and definitely isolated. But it does not feel psychologically daunting in, in that sense. What I also think was challenging for many people was the fact of sharing that confined space with their family for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And again, we all love our families, of course, but it, it's still very challenging. And so, you know, I, I, I kept saying that. I mean, it, it's normal. It Accept it, that it's challenging. Talk about it. It's not because you're a bad person. Uh, it's just a very difficult situation to cope with. And I, actually, I was was very positively impressed by by the fact that I was expecting more problems than than at least I became aware of from from those lockdown months. Mm.
2: Let's come back to your your forthcoming mission. For the first time on the space station, we have Thomas in space at the moment. We have Matthias Mora going up or Mara. I can never get that right <laughs> um, he 's going up next, and then it will be you, So it' be a continuity of european space agency astronauts i mean that 's quite a big deal isn 't it
1: it is it is and it and, and, and 's a challenge also for our teams all right they, they really have to step up to to this challenge of not having a break after an astronaut flight you know historically we almost always had a break. And if we did not have a break, it was like a maximum of like two flights back to back. And now we are really, really stress testing the, the system here and, and, uh, and asking people to step up to the challenge by giving them three flights back to back. So a year and a half of com- absolute commitment by all the support teams to, to get these three missions done.
3: And between now and your mission, what will you mostly be doing?
1: Mostly training with the crew at this point. So I have about six months of training behind me, which were more like the one-on-one training in which I got a refresher on all the systems of the space station and all the basic skills. And then we're moving into the phase where we really are going to do a lot of simulations, a lot of simulator sessions as a crew, some of them for the Dragon vehicle and uh, some of them for space station. So we're going to start going through as a crew a lot of uh, emergency simulations, major malfunctions, something like what happened recently on space station where they had a a loss of attitude control following the inadvertent firing of um, the MLM thrusters. That's what we would call a, a major malfunction situation. It's not an emergency. There's not an immediate threat to the safety of the crew but you're losing attitude control of the space station so very soon you will get unless you solve that situation if the if the space station keeps tumbling or rotating out of attitude eventually you will lose communication you will lose power generation you will lose thermal control and so there is like a cascading effect on all the systems and major malfunctions like that are things that we definitely train for
3: But you've experienced sort of that already, haven't you? When you were on your mission, you had Soyuz inadvertently fire its thrusters and that did affect the attitude of the space station.
1: We did. We had a a similar situation, not quite as dramatic. I I think the MLM thrusters, they they, they are more powerful. They fired a lot longer.
3: But there must have been a moment then before you found out...
1: Yes, well, definitely, definitely. But it was very, it was very quick. Mm -hmm. So in our cases, I was actually in the cupola. I saw the thrusters firing. You know, I was there for, you know, I was was looking at it and and, and for a moment it just went through my mind, you know, what's going on? Why are the thrusters firing? You know, is is Moscow turning them on? But why? There's no reason. And, you know, in in the split of a second that those thoughts were going through my mind. And then of course I hear the alarm and we had loss of attitude control. And then we, we talked to Houston, they obviously confirmed. But in our case, just looking out of the window, you could see that, you know, we were obviously losing altitude. Otherwise, there would be no alarm, but we were not tumbling very quickly. So we knew just by looking out of the window that we were not going to lose communication and, and thermal control and, and power generation quickly, just because we were not tumbling very quickly. And so we, we had some time.
3: I I love the descriptions that you give of of looking out at at Earth, and also that your sort of last little tour around the space station before you return to Earth just for yourself and doing a cartwheel because you could. That's sort of joyous. You you must be looking forward to going back.
1: I am I am incredibly looking forward to go back. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that moment because. Yeah, it was my last, probably my last hour on Space Station and I, I did this this tour and it was like saying my saying goodbye and, you know, I, it was a little bit melancholic because you never know, you go home and you don't know if you're ever going to come back. So it might have been my last visit to all those places on Space Station that have become so dear to me and so familiar to me. And so, you know, go- going back for me is kind of like, Picking up where I left off and it's like, hey, I'm, I'm back. It wasn't the last time, you know, I, I get to enjoy this for six more months. But also I'm really looking forward to it not being the first time anymore. I mean, there, there's something incredibly exciting about doing something for the first time, you know, In and that level of excitement, I am sure that, it, you know, you, you you just cannot repeat it. There is no way. But there is also something to be said about doing something not for the first time. Be- because you are not so overwhelmed by the emotion, by the excitement, by also the cognitive overload of so many new things happening at the same time, you have more cognitive buffer, you have more space in your mind and your heart to, to really observe and remember all the details of that process of adapting to space and, you know, marveling at the little things and, and, and really remembering and, and not, you know, I, I have the feeling the first time maybe some details were just drowned in that waterfall of emotions and impressions. And I'm really looking forward to living through that experience again with more calm and time to observe and remember.
2: What's the coffee situation like on the space station <laughs> at the moment? I'm, I, I am concerned for, for the Europeans on the space station that, you know, you, you'll just back to American coffee or is the espresso machine working?
1: Um, uh, it was, uh, returned. I, it, it's somewhere on Earth. The, the last, the last day I heard, they were discussing about what, what museum was going to get it. <laughs> so unfortunately, the espresso machine is not up there anymore.
3: Well, we're very sorry to hear that for you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Will, will you be taking your
3: uh, Star Trek uniform again this time?
1: <laughs> That's in a museum as well. <laughs> 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 That's that, uh, at uh, in a museum in Norvik close to Aztec. Um, so, yeah, unless they loan it back to me for, for the flight, it, it, it's probably going to stay there. But uh, we'll see. I, I, I'll try to bring something fun this time as well
2: intriguing. ESA astronaut and soon to be ISS commander Samantha Christopheretti and um, you've read her book.
3: It's great and I can really recommend it and it's slightly annoying actually that she's, <laughs> she's so good as a writer but I think that's often the case with astronauts. I think when they turn their mind to something that they really work hard and and I know she, she told me that she'd worked hard and had spoken with a friend who was a writer and, um, and it shows. It's really well written. It's, it's great.
2: And the book is uh, Diary of an Apprentice Astronaut. And something else that's it's interesting, actually, because, you know, we've got this huge number of applicants to become another ESA astronaut. And one of the key competencies and all the interviews to do with this, uh, with the uh, astronaut recruitment, they all highlight communication skills as one of the key competences of an astronaut. And you think how different that is to, you know, the right stuff of the late it's 50s, early, uh, early them, 60s, yes. you know, these uh, uh, sort of gung-ho uh, aviators. And now communication is key because that, well, that's, you know, a lot of their job is communication.
3: Yes. And it was interesting. I, I don't know whether you saw there was a piece in the Sunday Times newspaper recently highlighting a few of the women in the UK who've applied for the ESA astronaut selection process. And what is stunning about them all is that every single one you read about their achievements and you go, oh, my goodness, they are superhuman, a bit like you feel with, with Samantha in terms of her uh, sort of qualifications I don't know how they are going to possibly choose. And these were the, the women and they were sort of one in four of the applicants. So I can imagine the men are equally as well qualified yeah, if, if, how they're going
2: to do this. If you want to feel like an underachiever, look at the CV of any recent astronaut recruit, whether that's NASA or ESA or China. I mean, they are absolutely extraordinary. I'm very disappointed for Samantha, though, about the espresso machine. <laughs> I do feel for the European astronauts. I'm more. I mean, interested a year without decent with coffee, or six yes, months without decent coffee. For you, coffee. that would be
3: difficult. It's a Star Trek costume. I want to know. It's or will it be a Star Trek? Might costume? Might be another one. Might because she has done the towel in space for the Douglas Adams Day. She's done the Vulcan salute. She's worn the Next Generation outfit. Maybe she'll go old school and get the classic. Star Trek uniform or
2: something. What a classic Yeah, of, I'd love I, I would I would love that. A yeah. Kirk outfit yeah. or a hurrah. A, 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 a,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a red shirt. <laughs> I would love that. But yes, I, I should imagine it'll be something sci-fi and that will be a nice a lovely surprise.
2: This is the Space Buffins Podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists.
3: Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you and you can also email us
2: at podcast at dot. Com, Which we think works. <laughs> <laughs> Next, one of the most elaborate space probe missions of the last few years. Young. System, Star, all
1: systems are ready. Mm. Mm. Millions, Millions, million engines start. Million engines start. SLDA, the mission is left off. We had a liftoff of the H2A launch vehicle number 26 with the Hayabusa 2 and 3-second was on board from the Tanegashima Space Center at 1.22.04 p.m.
0: on December 3, 2014, Japan Standard Time.
2: I love that. Audio from JAXA, the Japanese space agency, as they launched their Hayabusa 2 probe back in December 2014. The spacecraft flew to an asteroid known as Ryugu, landed rovers and an impactor on its surface to collect samples and delivered them back to Earth last year. Since then, the samples have been studied by scientists in Japan. And last month, a team at the Open University in the UK got their hands on them. Well, actually, not literally. We spoke to the research leader, Dr Richard Greenwood, who was rather pleased with the rock they'd collected. These are the single most important
5: extraterrestrial samples that have ever been returned to Earth. What the Japanese have done is hit the jackpot, essentially. So they've gone to an asteroid, which is a primitive type of asteroid, so it's very, very dark in colour. They've collected these samples, and they're working on them at the moment. They've collected 5.3 grams of the best material that's ever been returned to Earth, in terms of understanding the origin of the solar system.
3: Five grams, that's that's a minute amount, isn't it? No,
5: it turns out that it's not. No, it is in, 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 a, in a sort of normal space, you think of 5.3 grams. But for the last 40 or 50 years, all the sort of scientific uh, instrumentation has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller, working on tinier and tinier particles. 5.3 grams turns out to be enough to keep the sort of cosmochemistry community going for 100 years. It's a huge amount of material. And so they didn't have to collect a lot. They just had to collect the right material under the right conditions, which is what they've done. So it's, it's pristine in the sense that it's never been contaminated. And so you can do all sorts of things on it that you just can't do with, say, like more conventional samples such as meteorites. So, you know, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's the best sample ever collected.
2: Can you just give us a sense of the journey this has been on, this this sample you've got? You know, because, I mean, it's quite a, quite a long way between here and there and back again.
5: It was collected after the uh, spacecraft arrived in 2018 and it deposited the sample in... December 2020, and it landed in the Woomera test area in Australia. It was kept free of Earth's atmosphere. It was taken to JAXA, the Japanese space agency, where it was opened in a very clean cabinet in sort of a nitrogen atmosphere, I guess. Uh, So it's never seen the Earth's atmosphere, which is causing us a few complications at the moment. But it's pristine. It's essentially the material that was collected at the um, uh, asteroid, and um, it's in fantastic condition. How... Difficult was that, because collecting that sample
2: in the first place.
5: This is from the in terms of the the Jackson mission in itself. Well, they did. They had two shots at it, basically. So they um, touched down and collected material from the surface, and then they put an impactor in and blew a kind of hole in the asteroid, and then they went back down again and collected a second uh, lot of material they could have i think they could have collected 3 but they only used 2 because obviously there were safety issues so there was chamber a which is the sort of surface material and chamber c which is supposed to be subsurface and therefore cleaner and we've got samples of both so in theory the stuff in in chamber c should be relatively pristine that's the uh, that's the idea and uh, our job is to analyze the oxygen isotope composition uh, of this material
2: What are the questions you can answer with this? I mean, you know, you you talked about how excited you were and how pristine this is. What can you actually answer with this? Okay, so uh, it's a tiny bit
5: of background, but you have to view it from where we've come from in terms of our understanding of extraterrestrial samples. And the ones that we most normally study are meteorites. And people kind of think meteorites will all be kind of the same. It turns out they're not. They're very, very varied. That there's one particular rare type of meteorite that has a composition which is identical to that of the sun. And that's what they've brought back. Now, the problem is that this stuff is very, very loose and it very rarely lands on Earth. When it does, it's often been highly processed because it's coming in through the Earth's atmosphere. What you want to do is you want to land on an asteroid which has got that composition. You want to collect it in a sort of completely pristine way and bring it back very gently to Earth and then distribute it to the world's laboratories. It's kind of like a, d- a dream. And that's exactly what they've done. Unbeknown to themselves, they've gone to the right asteroid, collected exactly the right sample, under exactly the right conditions. And so right now, uh, there are a lot of very excited scientists with just the best sample they could have been given. So what
3: are you doing at the moment? Because you said it's never been in contact with the Earth's atmosphere. How are you studying it? Is, is it in a, a sort of glass container, like a, 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 a thermos flask effectively, so that it's, it's protected from the atmosphere?
5: OK, so that's, that's the additional complication for us, because we, we normally analyse meteorites. And of course, there's no problem. They are collected in the desert. They've probably been there for centuries Uh, they're fully contaminated so we don't have to worry about that aspect at all we just get the sample we load it into our machine no problem but of course we've received this sort of sample from japan in a nitrogen atmosphere and we've got to open it up in a nitrogen rich atmosphere and load it up and make sure that it never sees the earth's atmosphere so we've got to put it in what's called a glove box so it's basically a a big perspex box in which we have to put our arms through in rubber gloves It's full of nitrogen. Then we open the sample up and then we load it into our sample chamber, close the sample chamber up and then put it onto our machine. So there's an extra level of complexity just to keep that pristineness of the sample really. And
3: how long will you be studying for it? You you said it could be for like a century or so. Um, But how long do
5: you expect to uh, study it for? We need to get our results uh, by the end of September. So we're working in partnership with the Japanese. And actually on Monday, we've got a big kind of brainstorming session to put together the information we've collected already and the Japanese have collected vast amounts of information already but we've got to do ours fairly carefully so we'll probably be running the sample in mid-September I think um, with the idea that we'll actually get the final results by the end of September.
3: Oh how exciting!
5: And the, the really exciting thing is that we we have as I say we've studied lots of meteorites in the past and we have an idea what it's similar to but the more information that's been coming in this we could well be that this analysis will fall way ab- a- Away from all the other known groups, unlike meteorites, we sort of think, "Oh, I think it'll probably be that one," or "It looks a bit like this one." We genuinely have no idea what the oxygen isotope composition, which is what we do, is going to be. It's basically something that's completely new to science because this material, if it ever impacted the Earth, would be destroyed in the atmosphere. It's so it's the, so powdery and so friable so that it just wouldn't survive the buffeting that you get as the meteorite comes into Earth's atmosphere. So, you know, we have no idea really. Um, we have a general idea, but specifically, what what this stuff actually is.
2: Why does that matter? What what sort of fundamental science are you getting at here in terms of the origins of the solar system, in terms of cosmology, the, the sort of big picture?
5: Well, the the, the the implications for the Earth are that we net we know, for example, that if you think of uh, the uh, inner and outer planets. You've got obviously the inner planets, Venus, Mars, Earth, they're very different to the material that's found a long way out, you know the icy planets and all that kind of thing. And the inner solar system was probably a pretty, at one stage, a pretty dry and barren place and one of the ideas is that the stuff from the outer solar system leaked into the inner solar system bringing water, organics, all the things you need for life. This material is the stuff that came from the outer solar system. So on one level, it'll tell you hopefully something about the origin of life, the origin of water on our planet. It also will tell you about how these things have evolved within the solar system as a whole. So they're very old materials. So if you're studying the Earth, you know, we have mountain building and rivers and all that kind of thing. The Earth is continually changing its its face. But it means that you can't really get back too far on Earth, whereas meteorites and asteroids of this type. They formed and then not a great deal has happened to them since. So they really give you a key to the very earliest stages of solar system evolution. And that's what we're really looking for. We want to find out what conditions were like at the very
2: beginning. Open University researcher Richard Greenwood.
3: And by the way, Richard was also quite heavily involved in the Winchcombe. I think it is Winchcombe. I'd never heard of this place before. It's a village. Oh, it's a village in the Cotswolds. And it was the Winchcombe meteorite, which fell in a family's driveway. <laughs> so, but the fireball that it came from was seen from France and um, the Netherlands, apparently, over the UK. And that winchcombe meteorite, they discovered, <laughs> Richard was the first scientist on the scene. I love love that. It's like the thought that He's like Batman or something. I was like Ghostbusters? Go. Yeah, meteorite man, ready to get out wherever he can. And they, and he. Do you think he has an outfit? I hope so. Lycra, but not a cape. They dated it back at the university to 4.6 billion years old, which means it's really rare this meteorite because it's right near the start of the formation of the solar system. So it's a very important find, and it's just gone on display, or part of it has just gone on display at the Winchcombe Museum. And I did look that up on um, on on the interweb, and it made me laugh because it's just you say a village, and I think it. it it's quite obvious or it's a, sm- a really small town because the museum was only open
2: April to October.
5: <laughs>
3: I love that. Those yes, museums are the best. Yeah. Those
2: volunteer run museums. They are. Just they're they're now, sweet. But if I was going got... to stop doing this, I would have a museum. Yeah. I'd love a museum. What would you put we got, in so, it? Well, we've got so much Tat. Oh, I mean, that's not museums. Not
3: supposed to be filled. With, <laughs> it's supposed to be filled Richard's with Tat. wonderful curated items. Would it be space or because we've got mostly we collect 1930s and 40s radios, lots of them Bakelite and wooden. And, and for be reasons radios, that be we
2: won't go into now, I've got an awful lot of cinema projectors as well, which oh, I've yeah. inherited it fell off the back of a lorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
3: So it could be a media, a me, media ha- museum, a media, media and space museum. No, Yeah. No. Mm. Oh, well. oh well. We'll, well, we'll rethink. But you, if you want to follow um, Richard on Twitter, by the way, he's on at Meteorite's blog. Great. Now, as you probably know. Are you say
2: great to yourself.
3: Yeah. I'm just saying great because, you know, I, I thought he was really, really funny. Yeah, he was. He was yeah, great. He was yeah. absolutely great. Brilliant. Uh, now, as you probably know, we celebrated our 10th anniversary in July as our very first Space Boffins podcast was in July 2011. And we were joined on that podcast. Do listen. It's, it's all up there. All our past podcasts are, are there by the BBC's John Amos, and he was one of the first guests on the programme. And we noticed that we'd also featured in that very first podcast, Space Journalist Kate Arkless-Grey, or Space Kate on Twitter and social media. Now, she'd not long started then this 10-year quest of hers to get into space by the time she was 40. So we sort of chatted, didn't we, in that that July podcast about her blog, because she had this lovely reminiscencing about what she had achieved... In those 10 years without quite making it off earth just yet so we thought it'd be really good we did say we must get her back on the podcast so here she is you're about to hear from her we're catching up with kate again to hear just some of the highlights about her decade-long journey into all things space
4: i can't really believe what's happened in the last 10 years honestly it's been a complete whirlwind and i i had to sit down just as I was turning 40, and make a list of the things that I had done. So I hadn't physically made it into space. But my photograph has been to the International Space Station. My voice has been to the Space Station. I've had phone calls from space. In fact, I missed one one day because I started a new job. My phone was on silent because I was trying to make a good impression. And then I noticed I had a voicemail. And the phone number that I'd missed the call from was a Houston number. I thought, well, that's strange. Quick Google. Oh, hang on a minute, that's Johnson Space Centre. Listen to this uh, voicemail, and I had a voicemail from Commander Chris Hadfield who said, oh, hi, Kate, it's just Chris calling from orbit. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I missed this phone call. But I have the best ever voicemail message, which, of course, I have saved off my phone. I mean, that's just one of the crazy Hold on, that-
3: let's just park that. I mean, my mouth was wide open there for about 15 seconds. That is Brilliant. So, you know, let's say Chris Hadfield was assuming he's not a stalker. How did you get your number?
4: I had met Chris really quite early on in my space adventures. And uh, I was in Houston. I was trying to go on a, a zero G flight and report on some stuff that NASA was doing. And unfortunately, because of this, that and the other regulation and the fact that they can't spend education money on foreign journalists or even be seen to be doing that. And it was a an educational flight rather than a pure research flight. Long story short, I didn't get to go on the zero-g plane. That has happened to me a couple of times where I've been very, very close to getting on the zero-g plane. The second time, I blame Brian Cox. It was his fault I didn't get to go. Uh, Yeah, (sighs) not good. But yeah, uh, they did manage to set me up an interview with Chris Hadfield and I was talking with him. And it was a time where there was a a very important spacewalk uh, happening because they needed to fix something on the space station and he was going to be Capcom the next day and we somehow got talking about flying and he was going flying that evening and said you know oh, I, w- I would have invited you to come flying with me but I was leaving I was leaving Houston that day but somehow we managed to stay in touch and many years later I met him again and I was sort of joking about that And and then when he went to space he put me on his friends and family list like a huge privilege, which means that I could email him while he was in space. And originally, you know, I, I said to him, what sort of things would you like to hear from, you know, from me back down on Earth? Like, you, you're having this incredible adventure. So I was trying to send, like, posters of the sunset or, you know, hear some bird song, or, you know, little things to remind him of Earth. And then at some point, I think I just sent him a picture of a dress that I'd been trying on and say, do you think this is any good? So I have got an astronaut-approved dress, which it makes me smile when I wear it. But yeah, um, the reason that he was calling me was that I had entered the NASA Space Apps Challenge back in 2013. And I had an idea, and we created this thing, and we won the London Heat. And we actually won the international prize
3: for the most inspirational app. And he was ringing to congratulate me. I remember when you you won that. I mean, that was very, very exciting. I mean, just those two things alone are pretty unique. And I I got the news about winning that
4: prize while I was, because I was new in this other job, I was sitting through a, a health and safety briefing as part of my induction and counting down the minutes until it became lunchtime and I could just squeak, oh my God, we won, we won, we won, because I was just so thrilled. It was amazing, yeah
2: just going back what was your motivation for this because we're, we're all obviously space fans but it, it's taking it to a, another level and having this determination to do these things but without crossing that line to becoming a stalker you know, it, it is you
3: know it it, it is it, difficult for both of us yeah and, it,
2: and it's you know it, it's maintaining friendships with astronauts which you know we know some astronauts it's it's tricky because they are very different people they have very different lives
4: I mean, the thing that inspired me in, in the beginning was was meeting Dr. Chris McKay from NASA Ames and he gave me the NASA pin badge and that's that story I've told many a time about that's what made space real for me. And I, I guess all that pent-up excitement about space that was there bubbling under the surface while I was younger, it just came out and I thought, oh my gosh, space is real. I didn't think this was something that people like me could be part of or connected to or have any connection with. I mean meeting him was amazing, you know, a real person from real NASA. And then then I met some rocket scientists, and then I met some mission controllers, and then I met some astronauts, and and then I met some moonwalkers. And it, it's just completely it's mad. But it all started from just realizing that it is real and and people can have that connection with it and I I think I'm really inspired to try and have these amazing experiences myself, just so that I can share them with other people and show, look what you could do. You know, if I had known what I know now, when I was, you know, choosing what subjects to do at school, or well, I mean, I did science anyway, but I did genetics, because that was the cool thing. But if I'd known that space would be such a big thing in my life, or just in the world, generally, I would have absolutely have done everything I could to be a proper professional in the space industry, an astronaut, a rocket scientist, whatever it was, I I would want to be that.
2: I have to say, I think sometimes you've got better access than particularly those of us in the more formal media. I remember talking to you, you just come back from standing on the runway next to Charlie Bolden when a shuttle landed. (laughs) You know, I mean, extraordinary access, particularly for a Brit, because it is hard, particularly with NASA, to get this sort of this sort of access if you are, in inverter commas, a foreign national.
4: That was one of the most ridiculous days of my life. None of that should have happened. It was mad. Yeah, I had had the choice many months before whether I would apply to be a registered media and then go and see the launch and landing of the space shuttle, or I'd been selected for the NASA tweet-up. But if I did that, it would only be the launch. But that was fine. You know, I didn't have two weeks that I could just hang around and wait for the landing. And this, of course, was STS-133, the final launch of Space Shuttle Discovery, which was delayed, to put it mildly, very delayed. I ended up staying about four months in the US, waiting for that thing to fly. And I had the most crazy adventures, The 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 kind of space social media family sort of adopted me. You know, the NASA family were lovely to me. Uh, there's so many people that I need to thank. And it was actually the night before the, the shuttle landing. I was out with some friends that I had met along the way, some people from NASA, someone from SpaceX. So I was a photographer who had, you know, all the right credentials. He was from Miami. And they were all talking about where they were going to watch the landing. And there were just a couple of us from the tweet up, and if we were lucky, we could drive for about an hour, and we might see this tiny little speck in the sky and see the landing that way. And it was the end of this mad adventure that I'd been on, so I said, let's go for one more drink. Let's just go for a little good night, and, and then we'll all go off to work. And we were in this pub, and then Charlie Bolden walked in, and I basically did a very cheeky smile and told my crazy story about having been waiting for the the space shuttle to launch and and I showed him my space shuttle earrings and and he was just such a nice guy. I mean, he was a genuinely just a really human human being, you know? And I, there was just this connection where I I like to think that I can tell the difference between somebody who's like, <laughs> "Yeah, nice to meet you. Now go away." and someone who's vaguely interested. And he seemed to give me the time of day. And somehow it was obviously my lucky day because he sent an email. And when the boss of the whole of NASA sends an email to someone, they tend to do it. And somehow I managed to get on the media site. In fact, I I walked up the stairs on this stand. I was like, someone's going to throw me out. Someone's going to throw me out. I shouldn't be here. I don't have my credentials. You know, I'm a foreign national. Oh, my gosh. And and there was that photographer that I'd had dinner with the night before. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I knew you'd make it. (laughs) I knew you would be here and he'd saved a little spot for me and when this woman came over to talk to me I didn't know who she was and the photographer was like oh my gosh you know her and I was like "Uh, I mean we just swapped some email oh my gosh you've got her email address and I'm like um getting a bit worried turned out she was the head of press for the whole of Kennedy Space Center like this is exactly the sort of person you do not want to be on the wrong side of especially as an aspiring space journalist and she's obviously just had an email from like her boss's 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 boss, saying, "Can you get this random girl in to see the landing?" And and after it landed, which by the way was the most incredible thing other than the launch, I'm oh, just amazing. She came back and said, "Can I speak to you, uh, just to you?" And I was like, "Oh my god, here is the bit where I'm just going to get absolutely yelled at. Like, there's no hope. I am in so so much trouble." And I took a deep breath, thinking, "I don't want." In the adrenaline of this moment, I don't want to lose this incredible memory of the shuttle landing. And she said, um, "Administrator Bolden is about to greet some VIPs. I'd love for you to come and meet him." <laughs> what? I, I'm going to see the, I'm going to meet the head of NASA twice in two days. Oh my gosh! So we we go over, and you know, his entourage comes along, and she just pauses as he gets to the gate and said, "Oh." Administrator Bolden, I'd like you to meet. And he cut her off and went, oh, you made it. How was it? And I was just like, oh, I'm in the shuttle. He was so amazing. Like, thank you. And I went to shake his hand and he gave me a bear hug. And then he off we went. Honestly, the stories I could tell you, and there are more, you know, I managed to stay in touch with Charlie Bolden for all these years. And yeah, what a superstar. You know, he could tell that I was just genuinely interested and passionate and was ready to share the stories and get other people excited. And he really did everything he could to support me on that. And he didn't need to do that.
3: What I like about this is that it it really reflects the sort of camaraderie of the space community. That it's not just those who work within space who love space and are happy to often give their time and, and, and discuss it with fans effectively, even whether they're journalists or, or not. But also the fact that you mentioned the tweet ups, whether it's NASA socials or ESA socials or space hipsters on Facebook. And we've had Emily Carney on, on the podcast. It really is on the whole. A very supportive, sort of happy bunch of people. Do you feel it's like a, you know, you mentioned Charlie Bolden, a big bear hug. Do you feel like the space community is the equivalent of a bear hug?
4: On the whole, absolutely. I think there's, yeah, there's some amazing people. It's it's one of those things where you think, oh my gosh, space, space is huge. I'm never going to know any of these people. And then when you sort of become acquainted with it or become a part of the community or go to the conferences or you work for a company, you start to see some of the same people. And, you know, it's the same with radio. You know, when I was trying to get into radio when I was younger, I was, oh, gosh, lots of famous radio presenters and important people. But actually, you suddenly realise, well, the UK radio industry isn't that big. Well, it turns out the international space industry isn't that big either, And if you go to enough different conferences or if you take the time to be engaged or read the things, you'll start to see the same names. And and you will see people helping out. A lot of people are out there, you know, encouraging, you know, more diversity in the industry. There's like a whole group of people who are really like on it and happy to help and to encourage other people. And, you know, we celebrate if somebody hands in their PhD thesis, and they put that on Twitter. And there's a few of us who will always correct the media for using if they use manned spaceflight instead of human spaceflight. <laughs> I know you're one of those <laughs> champions as well, Sue. Thank you. Got to keep them on their toes. Yeah, it's it's a really, really nice bunch. And there are different organisations that you can get involved with, um, especially if you're, you know, younger and trying to get into the industry, things like UK said, or the thing for me was, I wish I'd found this earlier, is the Space Generation Advisory Council. What an absolutely incredible organisation and, and a way to meet people from literally all around the world and brilliant people. And then you, once you start to know those people, you see them in their careers progressing and then they've got contacts and they've got, and everyone, you know, everyone that I've met generally wants to share, wants to help each other. We're all so excited about space, that, you know, anything that
2: helps one person
4: helps all of us.
2: Okay, briefly, what's your plan for the next 10 years? In space by 50?
4: Goodness me, I don't know. Well, you know, I was waiting for the prices to come down. (laughs) I was waiting for all of these amazing commercial companies. You know, one of them has gone out of business, two of them are Suborbital, and one is cheaper than the other. The other one is Orbital, and I would love to do that. Oh, I have a picture in my head of me sitting in a Crew Dragon capsule, but it's only in my head because I wasn't allowed to take a camera with me. Oh, I was also told that I'm the perfect size for a Soyuz capsule. So you
2: would be. Since you're not taking yeah. the Americans anymore. You, well, you've got 10 years to learn Russian, so you're fine.
3: Absolutely. Kate Arkless Gray, and we'll update you as soon as she gets into that Soyuz capsule.
2: And uh, we can get her on in another ten years. Oh, hopefully sooner. Yeah, sooner. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. Our producer has been Jack Monahan. Uh, do get in touch on social media. Um, you can rate, review, or better still, recommend us to someone you think would like the podcast. Or recommend it to someone you think you, know, won't, you know. won't like it. do <laughs> they download it. Download yeah, if you, it. If you like don't really, like them, yeah. recommend yeah. us. If, if they really hate it. space. As long as they download it, yeah. don't really mind. Oh, anyway, uh, thanks for listening.
0: Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Wusstest du, dass 61% der Deutschen bereit wären, Geld für eine Versicherung der Erde auszugeben? Bis das möglich ist, kannst du deine Welt im Kleinen versichern. Die passenden Angebote findet der Clark-Algorithmus aus über 160 Versicherern für dich. Natürlich zugeschnitten auf deine aktuelle Lebenssituation. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Teste uns. Jetzt anmelden und deine Versicherungen einfach über die kostenlose App managen. Ohne Papierkram. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode podcast30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro.